Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 43 So Many Projects, So Little Progress By late 1947, the studio had undergone yet another reorganization plan, this one putting Ben Sharpstein in charge of all feature animation and Hal Adelquist, who had been head of personnel, in charge of the story department. But this was really just shuffling the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. As Ben Sharpstein later explained it, we knew that it would never endure. Certain people would be put in charge of this or that, but there was very little likelihood that they would stay in that position for very long. Walt would probably give their job to someone else in a sudden move. Still, Sharpstein said, Walt persisted in complaining that we had no plan for management and that we had to organize ourselves. Fred Leahy, who was still nominally the head of production under Walt, had lost most of his authority when he suggested that the studio cut Fantasia into shorts. Jack Reeder, who was nominally the head of the entire studio operation, ran afoul of Walt by taking his own command seriously until Walt finally forced him out of the studio in May 1948. Two months after Reader left, Walt reinstated gambling at the Penthouse Club as a kind of final kick at the bureaucrats. But even after retaking the helm, he was still largely diddling, disengaged, and uninterested. He spent the early part of the year finalizing The Wind in the Willows and Ichabod Crane, which he intended to release as a single film since neither part was long enough or substantial enough to constitute a feature in itself. Walt had once written to a fan who had suggested a film of Willows, we have never considered it particularly well suited for cartoon material. While the studio lumbered ahead on various feature projects, Walt was also working on a live-action film set in rural Indiana about a young boy who adopts a black lamb and a second true-life adventure, this one on beavers. It was another sign of the studio's financial and imaginative stagnation, however, that its big release in 1948 was Melody Time, a compilation of seven shorts, and though it had originally been intended as an anthology of American folk heroism, the only heroes who survived were Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill. The rest of the film had sections as disparate as a musical interpretation of Joyce Kilmer's poem, Trees, and a Courier and Ives-style animation called Once Upon a Winter Time. The film cost a staggering $2 million and returned only $1.3 million, a loss Roy attributed to a polio scare that kept children out of theaters, forcing him to memo Walt. It makes, all, it, makes it all more necessary, all the economies we can affect. More layoffs followed. With the studio in the red, Walt had only one glimmer of hope that he might produce another feature film to win back his audience, silence the critics, and pump money back into the operation. But it was a small glimmer because as the studio had bled animators, it had lost one of the primary resources that might have made a feature viable. And it was small because Walt, knowing that he no longer had the talent at the studio, was loath to commit himself to another feature, loath to permit himself to dream. In any case, Roy was insistent that they not gamble everything on a feature. When Wooly Reitherman returned to the studio after the war, he said that Walt was very, very teetered, by which he meant indecisive, over whether they should make a feature or just sell the studio. 
At the time, Walt was pondering Cinderella, which he had been developing in fits and starts since 1938, with the obvious hope that it could recapture the magic of Snow White, and he was also looking at Alice in Wonderland, for which he had hired English writer Aldous Huxley to do a screenplay, and for which he had floated the name of child actress Margaret O'Brien, not only because O'Brien might attract an audience, but also because she was under contract at MGM, and her involvement might entice MGM to distribute the film rather than RKO, with whom the Disneys were disillusioned. The decision was clearly less a matter of passion than of expediency. By one account, Walt, unable to choose between the projects, called a meeting of his non-animation employees, played them the songs composed for each film, showed them the storyboards, and then had them vote on which film they preferred. They chose Cinderella, though Alice was kept in production as well, so that the animation crews on both films were effectively competing to see which might finish first. In the spring of 1946, Walt received a treatment on Cinderella from his veteran storyman Ted Sears, Homer Brightman, and Harry Reeves, and he ordered storyboards with the intention of having the film ready for a late 1949 release. Wooly Reitherman had seen the Cinderella storyboards and went directly to... Walt's office to tell him how much he liked the film and how much potential he thought it had. Years later, Reitherman said, Walt told him that he was sure glad that I'd come to see him, as if he might not have proceeded otherwise, which only underscored just how uncertain the once infallible Walt Disney had become. At long last, the studio seemed to regain some of its fire. Cinderella really brought back the good feeling with a bang there, Ben Sharpstein said. Milt Call cited a degree of euphoria now that the animators were back working on something important, but it was soon clear that Cinderella was not Snow White, at least not in the way it was produced, and for a film that was meant to be the studio's salvation, it received little of the attention that the early features had had lavished upon them. Walt was so reluctant to take any chances, the sort of chances he had taken on Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi, that early in 1948, he had the entire film shot in live action on the soundstage with actors mouthing the dialogue track. The aim was not to provide film to rotoscope as the studio had done in the past, but Frank Thomas recalled to see whether the scenes were going to work. Would they be too long? Too short? Will it hold your interest? This footage was then edited and sent to the animators on large photostat sheets to duplicate. The problem, said Thomas, was that the animators were not allowed to imagine anything that the live action did not present, since that kind of experimentation might, ne might necessitate changes and cost extra money, an approach that effectively defeated the purpose of animation and gave validity to the old criticisms that Walt Disney was too beholden to realism. The animators were even instructed to draw from a certain directorial perspective, head-on, to avoid difficult shots and angles. Thomas said he felt that your feet were nailed to the floor. Moreover, the style of the animation was different. It was in the new, sharper, flatter, more minimalist Disney mode. As Walt admitted to one prospective artist who recommended a florid approach, the drawings have to be done with a great deal of simplicity. 
In fact, Walt was so determined that Cinderella not resemble Snow White visually that he asked his one-time artist, Mary Blair, to return to design the characters, which she did in a delicate, almost greeting card fashion, against which Ben Sharpstein claimed the animators rebelled. Whole scenes were reimagined, too, to cut the detail and the cost of animating that detail. Harry Tittle suggested that during the ballroom scene, the other dancers dissolve into the dissolve into the faces of Cinderella and the prince so that the dancers wouldn't have to be animated, and he further suggested that the coach in which Cinderella rides to the ball seemed to float in the air so that the animators could avoid drawing the turning wheels and the coach's filigrees. At the same time, Walt was having individual scenes run for ARI audiences as soon as the animators finished them. In November, Sharpstein informed Walt that Bill Pete was working on the dress-building sequence in which Cinderella gets her gown. Composer Ollie Wallace had recorded a track for So This Is Love, Ham Lusk and Wilfred Jackson were continuing to shoot live-action scenes, and writers Winston Hibbler and Ted Sears had moved from Cinderella to the Ichabod Crane story. There was nothing unusual about any of this. What was unusual was Sharpstein having to tell Walt these things while the studio pressed on with its first fully animated feature in nearly eight years, the feature Walt had been desperate to make. In the past, Walt would have known it all already. In the past, Walt would have been there supervising every last detail. But then in the past, it would have mattered. Nothing seemed to matter because Walt felt that everything now was hopelessly compromised. As always, when he was disengaged, he traveled, this time to Smoke Tree, to Arrowhead Springs, to Alice Hall Ranch, and to Oak Creek Lodge in Arizona. In June 1948, after the release of Melody Time, he took a three-week cruise to Hawaii. It was a chance to spend time with his family and forget the studio. He was especially close to Sharon, whom one of Walt's secretaries once described as sort of like a little puppy dog, willing to go with him on junkets like the one in Alaska, or on a night train to San Francisco, or on a transcontinental train trip to New York, where the two of them rode in the engine for a spell. He still routinely drove both girls to their respective schools on his way to the studio each day, and he was an involved parent, even scolding Sharon's principal for giving the children too much homework because it took away from family time. He was also a loving and supportive father, encouraging Diane when she began attending the Schoenard Art Institute. He would collect all my drawings and make me think I was wonderful, Diane would recall, and attending Sharon's school plays and afterward telling her how good she had been. At one point, Diane got interested in music and asked her father to buy her a season tickets to the opera. He'd go with me to every one of them, Diane said, unless I could get three other girls to go. Then he would drive us down to the Shrine Auditorium and then come back and pick us up again. Diane admitted she thought he hated the opera, but he never made the slightest objection about going. At the dinner table, he liked to tell the family what he was doing, but he always asked them what they were doing as well, and he would listen, Diane said. He seldom disciplined them or displayed the anger in their presence that his employees so often saw. Though with the girls, as with his employees, he had only to arch his eyebrow to casten them. 
Sharon said that the only time he spanked her was when she had made an inappropriate comment at dinner, was sent to her room, and then complained to her Aunt Grace about the punishment. It was the complaining that irked him, and Diane remembered a time he erupted when she spent most of a Palm Springs vacation driving around in his Oldsmobile convertible and socializing with the daughters of 20th Century Fox production chief Daryl F. Zanuck, who had a house nearby. You're running a rat race, Diane, said her father, yelled at her when he finally caught her at home. You're never here. Why am I here if you're never around? As he had once castasized Marjorie Sewell. Then he left for the studio. A few days later, Diane was driving the Oldsmobile when she got into a fender bender. Walt drove right down to the scene of the accident and never said a word of reprimand. That's the way he was, Diane said. He only got mad when he felt hurt. Lillian could be thought with could be thoughtless with the girls. She and Walt had decided never to let Sharon know that she was adopted, but when Sharon was a teenager, two of her classmates at the Westlake School, who were themselves adoptees, told her that she was adopted too. When Sharon confronted her mother with the information, Lillian said matter-of-factly and without softening the blow, "'Well, you are.' Diane said that was mother's attitude about a lot of things, maybe a little insensitive, but not realizing it. Walt was different. Most of the time, he was considerate, even tender with his girls. When he took Sharon to Alaska, she called him the picture of patience, saying that he braided her long hair every morning, washed out her clothes, and cleaned up the plane after she gorged herself on Hershey chocolate bars and got sick. When Diane experienced her first menstrual period and ran to her parents in shock and confusion, she said that it was her father, not her mother, who consoled her. But as much as he cherished his girls and enjoyed spending time with them, there was something solitary about him when he wasn't at the studio, something self-absorbed and distant. With nothing to occupy him, he had impulsively decided that he was going to hack a path around the perimeter of his Woking Way property, and he spent most of his weekends the summer of 1947 blazing what the family jokingly referred to as his Burma Trail after the Southeast Asian World War II supply line. Shirtless in the hot sun, digging and lifting, perspiring profusely, alone in his own world except for Sharon, whom he paid to fetch him soft drinks. Lillian said that at Smoke Tree, she once caught him out on the terrace acting out a scene on which he was working, laughing and talking to himself, so completely engrossed that he didn't notice anyone else. His beloved chow, Sonny, had died. No other dog could equal that dog, he would say, but he got a new dog, a brown standard poodle named Duchess, who followed him around the house and even accompanied him on his weekend forays to the studio, where employees who happened to be there got to know the clip-clip-clip of her nails on the tile floor. Paul Smith, a composer, said that when Duchess heard him playing the piano, she would bound down the hall to his room. If his evenings and weekends with Duchess were a measure of Walt's loneliness now that the girls were growing up and he didn't feel the same sense of collaboration at the studio, so was his time with Hazel George. George was a stocky, plain-faced, tough-talking young woman who had grown up hard-bitten in the Arizona border town of Bisbee, where she somehow became a ward of the juvenile court, received training as a psychiatric nurse, and was advised by a counselor to head out to California and see if she could get a job, of all places, at the Disney studio. She began working there as the company nurse during the strike. Walt's doctor warned her, you're going to have a hell of a time with him. In fact, she didn't. 
Walt needed a confidant, someone he could just talk to, and Hazel George became that person. Every day, usually after five o'clock, she would come to his office or he would go to hers, where she administered a diathermy treatment or gave him a massage for his polo injury, and then Walt would sip a scotch and unwind by unburdening himself to Hazel. They called the offices their laughing place after Uncle Remus's shack in Song of the South. The same description Walt had used for Walt Pfeiffer's home in Kansas City, where he had once shared gay times. There was nothing sexual about the relationship. In fact, Hazel was involved with the composer Paul, with the composer Paul Smith. For Walt, it was strictly a matter of companionship and confidence of not having to be Walt Disney. In time, it would be said that Hazel knew all Walt's secrets and that she was probably the most secure employee in the studio. But it was more than, but it was more than solace Walt found in Hazel. He trusted her, no doubt, because he knew she was outspoken, honest, and unintimidated. Un unintimidatable at a time when he was afraid everyone else would tell him what they thought he wanted to hear. Of course, the employees were engaged in self-preservation precisely because Walt didn't like to be contradicted. He would show her storyboards and she would render her judgments. She even claimed to have named Seal Island and Beaver Valley the true life adventure on beavers. Hazel George, perhaps better than anyone else, including Lillian, knew that Walt was anxious and aimless without real animations to engage him. It was she who suggested he go to a railroad fair in Chicago, even though he had returned from Hawaii only a few weeks earlier. She said he still needed to relax. Picking up on the idea, Walt mused that Ward Kimball, a railroad enthusiast himself, always seemed relaxed, so he called Kimball and asked if he wanted to accompany him. They took the super chief from Pasadena. At one point, the president of the Santa Fe Railroad invited Walt and Kimball to ride in the engine and pull the cord to blow the whistle. Kimball said that Walt pulled long and hard. When they returned to their car, Walt just sat there, staring into space, smiling and smiling, Kimball recalled. I had never seen him look so happy. Walt received more of the same courtesy once they arrived at the fair, a general commemoration of the building of the railroads in America. The president of the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, Lenox Lower, who hosted the fair, let Walt and Kimball backstage at a pageant called Wheels A-Rolling, presented on a 450-foot platform off Lake Michigan embedded with tracks for historic locomotives. Walt was even allowed to run several of the old engines and appeared briefly in the show. We were like little kids running famous locomotives like the Lafayette, the John Bull, and the Tom Thumb, Kimball remembered. In addition to the show, the fair featured exhibits, lands, one observer called them, a replica of the New Orleans French Quarter erected by the Illinois Central Railroad, a dude ranch, a generic national park with a geyser that erupted every 15 minutes, sponsored by several of the Western Railroads, and an Indian village set up by the Santa Fe. But for all the fun and diversion Walt enjoyed at the fair, it was, like the trip to Godrich the previous summer, a journey into the past as well. A journey to rediscover himself and to rekindle his passions. During the trip out, Walt, obviously lonely, would rap on the door to Kimball's quarters, invite him into his sleeper, pour two whiskeys from a glass decanter, and talk. He was very preoccupied with his own history, Kimball said, and he spent two nights telling me his entire history from the time he was a boy, sold papers and the whole thing. As Walt 
As always, Walt especially savored telling about Mince's treachery and the creation of Mickey Mouse, savored it even more now that he was foundering. You see, I was right, he would tell Kimball. You see, I got back at them and they lost their ass. Once they were in Chicago, Kimball, a musician, wanted to visit some of the jazz clubs. Walt refused. Instead, one night, Walt coaxed Kimball into riding the elevated train with him as Walt, looking out the window, described the scenes of his youth in the city. At one isolated, dirty station, Kimball said, Walt and he got off, and Walt explained that this was where he would transfer trains to get to his post office job in 1918. Walt was reliving his youth, Kimball assessed. But the fascination with trains was more than a way to relive his youth in Marceline when his Uncle Mike, the engineer, would come up the lane to the Disney farm with his bags of sweets, or the summer in Kansas City when Walt rode as train butchers selling candy and soda, or the elevated train rides in Chicago before he left for war. Walt thought of the trains as a recreation and a way to decompress from the pressures of the studio. Lillian once claimed that after the war, Walt had come close to another breakdown like the one he suffered in 1931 because he was working too hard, she said, though the better explanation was that he was depressed from his work showing so little result, even as he kept pressing ahead. No matter what plans I made for the weekend, Lillian recalled, we would always end up at the studio. He couldn't get it out of his mind. Walt was a little more candid when he called the trains, just a hobby to get my mind off my problems. But as much as Walt Disney loved trains, he was always urging Lillian to put her foot on the rail so she could feel the vibrations, and as much as he needed a distraction, they were clearly becoming more than a hobby. The trains were turning into a replacement for animation, a new form of control in a world that was yielding less readily to him than it had in the golden days. Kimball said that he himself had planted the seed as early as 1945 when he finished a full-scale railroad on his two-acre plot in San Gabriel, or San Gabriel, complete with 900 feet of narrow-gauge track, an operating locomotive, and a passenger car. He called it the Grizzly Flats Railroad after a sign he had once seen in an abandoned Sierra logging town. Walt attended the steam-up party and got to play engineer as the locomotive crawled out of Kimball's engine house. He grinned broadly as he pulled the whistle and clanged the bell. Kimball could see that he was hooked on the power and the thrill. Once, Walt even brought home a train piston and proudly displayed it on the dining room table. Apparently wanting people to share his enthusiasm, Walt bought three of his grandnephew's Lionel model train sets for Christmas 1947, then decided to get one for himself, too, justifying it on the grounds that his doctor told him he needed a hobby. I bought myself a birthday Christmas present, he wrote his sister Ruth, sounding almost exactly like a child, something I've wanted all my life, an electric train. Being a girl, you probably can't understand how much I wanted one when I was a kid, but I've got one now and what fun I'm having. I have it set up in one of the outer rooms adjoining my office so I can play with it in my spare moments. It's a freight train with a whistle and real smoke comes out of the stack. There are switches, semaphores, stations, and everything. It's wonderful. Walt was actually soft-pedaling his new train set. 
In actuality, with the help of a machinist in the studio shop, Roger Brogy, he had built an elaborate layout in the office. According to one visitor, it was large enough to fill half of a two-car garage, boasting two trains with tunnels, miniature towns, and lead counterweights to raise and lower bridges. He loved playing with it, but when it was finished, he asked Brogy, this is an electric train. Now what's for real? In point of fact, Walt had seen what was for real when he saw Kimball's engine. When Kimball invited animator Ollie Johnston to Walt's office to look at Walt's electric train, Johnston told Walt about a 112th scale steam locomotive that he was having built for his yard in the Sierra Madre foothill, foothills, and Walt began visiting the machine shop in Santa Monica, where the parts for Johnston's railroad were being milled. Meanwhile, Kimball introduced Walt to another train enthusiast, Dick Jackson, who had made a fortune in auto accessories before retiring and devoting himself to scale railroads. Walt, along with Lillian and Sharon, visited Jackson at his Beverly Hills home and got to run Jackson's steam engine. Walt had met yet another railroad buff that spring, William Casey Jones, who also had a scale railroad at his home in Los Gatos, and who also let Walt work the let Walt work the throttle. Personally, I envy you for having the courage to do what you want, Walt wrote Jones, clearly thinking of his own predicament. Now Walt wanted a train of his own, of his own, not a model, but a real train that was just large enough for him to sit on. He had Richard Jones, the head of the studio machine shop, begin making discreet inquiries of people who might be willing to sell miniature trains. Discreet because he obviously did not want potential sellers to know that it was Walt Disney who wished to make the purchase. Jones also placed an ad in Railroad Magazine requesting information on where he might buy a live steam and a live steam 8-gauge or 16-gauge railway, and he wrote other enthusiasts for information on how to lay a mile of miniature track. Later that summer, Walt and Sharon attended a fair of little engines in Lomita, California. When he returned to the studio, he had Dick Jones and Eddie Sargent, a draftsman, draw up blueprints and then begin work on an inch-and-a-half scale model of the Central Pacific 137 engine, a prototype of which he had seen at the Golden Gate International Exposition on the same trip. As Roger Brogy told it, Walt had shown up in the shop at 7.15 the morning after returning from the exposition and told Brogy to get to work on the train. Meanwhile, Walt entrusted William Jones with finding him a scale locomotive engine, if it can be had at a reasonable price. But Walt's plan was not simply to purchase a train or even to have one made for him at the studio to his specifications. The train, like the animation, was to be all-consuming. His escape from the animations, as the animations had been intended as an escape from reality. In effect, the train would be his job. And so Walt was going to make the train himself alongside Dick Jones, Eddie Sargent, and Roger Brogy. At night, for three or four hours at a time, and for long stretches on weekends, he began visiting the studio machine shop, located near the studio entrance in what were called boxcars, where Brogy had set up a workbench for him and taught him how to use the, jewel the jeweler's lathe, a miniature drill press, and a milling machine. He would go down there on Saturdays in his work clothes, often accompanied by Duchess or by Sharon, who would play in his office or ride her bicycle or drive her father's car slowly around the lot while he worked. Walt had taught her to drive there. Just as often, he was the only one in the shop. Fabricating the train became his new passion. 
And if he loved the model trains, he also loved this uncomplicated democratic process of making them, a process in which he was just a rookie machinist, as he called himself, and in which there were no expectations on him and no demands. You know, it does me some good to come down here and find out I don't know everything, he told Roger Brogy. It was like the early days at the studio when it was still fun. Ollie Johnston would remember occasions working side by side with Walt on their trains, and Walt saying, hey, I think I found out where they keep the hardwood, and off they would go to find scraps of, lum of lumber. And Walt enjoyed the craft. The sense of finally doing productive work again and doing it with perfection the way he had done the early features. Indeed, the detail work was such that it demanded perfection. He would carry his unfinished train wheels with him wherever he went that fall and winter. If he took his family to Palm Springs, the box of wheels went along, Diane recalled, and he sat there filing in the sun. And sitting there filing, Walt Disney was as contented as he had been in years. Just before Christmas 1948, a year after setting up his electric train set in his office, Walt finished the Central Pacific 137, laid a circle of 300 feet of track on the soundstage, and fired up the engine. He arranged another test run shortly before New Year's. Eddie Sargent was at the throttle and took a turn too quickly, falling off the tender and pulling the engine off the track, but Walt was ecstatic anyway. He had his train. He had the joy of collaboration again. He had an object on which to lavish his affection. He had the pleasure of doing work exactly as he wanted and an opportunity to exercise the control that he had lost. But if he was ecstatic, others were bewildered. Visiting the studio during this period, New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther was struck by how uninterested Walt seemed in movies and how wholly, almost weirdly, concerned with the building of a miniature railroad engine and a string of cars in the workshops of the studio. All of his zest for animation, for creating fantasies, seemed to be going into this plaything. Crowther said, I came away feeling sad. Sad because Walt Disney, the man who had helped shape the American imagination, was now spending most of his time playing with trains. Stay tuned for more next Monday. Wonderful Reads is a great free reading podcast, isn't it? If you agree, you can support the podcast by sharing it with friends and family, posting about it on social media, joining our Facebook group, and purchasing Sierra Spencer's books. To join our Facebook group, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one backslash that's https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one if you would like to purchase our current book, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash. 
The book is purchasable at https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash.